What's up, family? You are tuned into Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. From KPFA and the Pacifica Network, I'm your host, Jesse Strauss. We're joined this morning by an author whose latest novel draws on Jewish mysticism to fight anti-Semitism and modern white supremacy. The Golem of Brooklyn is that new book, and it offers a serious take, but written in a long legacy of Jewish self-deprecating and laugh-out-loud humor. Our guest, Adam Monsbach, has won awards for many of his books, but is perhaps best known for the number one New York Times bestseller, Go the F to Sleep. Adam, thank you for joining us. Thank you. It's great to be here. I love that description of the book. So. I already mentioned that your new book, The Golem of Brooklyn, ties in Jewish mysticism with a righteous fight against modern white supremacy. I want to draw that line actually in this conversation itself to talk about the book, to explore the mysticism element, to put it in the context of modern anti-Semitism, and then to place all that in the context of modern white supremacy in the U.S. It's kind of a tall order for one interview, but I think we can do it. Are you with me, Adam? I'm with you. I just drank an espresso. Let's go. I'm, I just finished my coffee as well. Okay. All right. First off, let's position ourselves in the conversation. I am white Jewish, raised in the Bay Area, pretty secular as a Jew, but with a tinge of religion and a whole lot of determination that was passed on to me from my mom and her parents who arrived in this country as Holocaust refugees. My mom grew up in rural New Jersey and then the Bronx. So New York feels very close to home for me. Adam, I'm wondering if you can position yourself as well. Sure. Um, I am also an Ashkenazi Jew. Uh, My family made its way to New York City, specifically the Bronx and the Upper West Side by way of Russia, Lithuania, Poland, that whole area where where the borders were constantly changing. So on one sentence, it's Russia. On the next, it's Lithuania. Uh, My grandparents were first generation or in the case of my grandmother on my mother's side, second generation. I appreciate the question also because, you know, one of the things that I've been increasingly aware of is the way in which Jewish folks in this country and in the world are by no means a racial monolith. So, you know, we run the entire gamut from uh, Mizrahi Jews to Ashkenazi to Sephardic to Black Jews to Asian Jews. So it's always good to dislocate that because there is some presumption of the normality of like Ashkenazi Eastern European Jews in this country, which is untrue and historically a fallacy as well. We weren't even the first Jews to get here. So I appreciate it. So I appreciate you going there. And we're going to go a little bit more into that side of the conversation later. But since you went there, and I want to bring our listeners in in case folks have no idea what you're talking about. Um, What do you mean by the normative Ashkenazi? I think that there is a societal perception that Jews are white presenting and of Eastern European origin, uh, Russian, Polish, German. Um, Those tend to be the dominant images of Jews that we see in the media. If you bring, you know, if you sort of sit down and play the game of naming the five or 10 most famous Jews in America that you can think of, whether that's actors, comedians, politicians, you know, most of the people that you are likely to come up with, whether that's Adam Sandler or Chuck Schumer, are probably going to be Ashkenazi Jews. But that's not necessarily reflective of the great diversity of Jewish folks in the country or in the world. Thank you for that. Okay, we are going to get back into some of those conversations. But first, let's get into the book. Um, I want to start with the mysticism piece. The book itself is called The Golem of Brooklyn, 
can you bring us into the story? What is a golem? What are you referring to? And I, I know you have a selection from your book um, that you could read for us around that. I also, for after you read that, I want to ask the question that some of folks are probably thinking, is there any relationship to the Lord of the Rings? <laughs> right. Different spelling. That's Gollum. This is Golem. I'm also aware of the fact that there are golems in Minecraft. That's also not what we're dealing with here. Um, a golem is a giant humanoid being, nine, ten feet tall, typically, made of mud or clay. By traditionally in the folklore, this is not from the Torah or the Talmud. This is Jewish Ashkenazi folklore dating from about the 1500s. A golem is made by a rabbi or a very learned man and brought to life at a moment of crisis. Typically, somebody is trying to kill the Jews, and the golem is a defender of the Jewish people. It is brought to life with mystical prayers and incantations, sometimes involving the unknowable, ineffable, true name of God. And always the final step in animating a golem is to write the word truth, the Hebrew word for truth, on its forehead or on a piece of paper inserted into its mouth. And when the golem has completed its mission, the last letter of the word truth is erased, which turns that word to the word death. And thus is the golem returned to inanimate matter. So that's the folklore. The golem of my book is a little bit different. To begin with, he is not created by a learned man. He is created by an art teacher who happens to have a lot of clay on hand and is extremely stoned. And he's not brought to life at a moment of crisis, but simply because this character, Len Bronstein, is kind of like messing around. Um, my golem also differs. There's been a lot of books written about golems over the years. My golem is very different from all of those golems because my golem is a creature who has an ancestral memory. So this golem remembers every previous iteration of itself. There's only ever been one golem in the world of this book. And he also doesn't date to the 1500s, but essentially goes back to the beginning of Jewish history. So he's sort of a repository of Jewish memory and trauma. And of course, he's only been brought to life at some of the worst moments in Jewish history. So, you know, his memory is a little skewed in that sense, too. He doesn't remember like a lot of uh, fun stuff, but a lot of like grimy and, you know, gnarly and violent stuff. Do you want to read us that selection as well, just to to bring us into the actual book? Sure. This is from a short chapter called Golemology. Of all the supernatural creatures in Jewish folklore, the golem is basically the only decent one. A giant humanoid built of mud or clay, always by a learned and holy man and always in a time of crisis. The Hebrew word for truth is inscribed on its forehead. Certain esoteric prayers and rituals are encanted and enacted, and the golem animates. Talmudic scholars who agree on nothing are unanimous in rejecting the notion that the golem is alive. When the golem has accomplished its mission, typically the martial defense of the Jewish people, as was the case with the golem of Prague, widely considered the Michael Jordan of golems, but sometimes manual labor, the task appointed to the golem of Helm, usually regarded as the Scotty Pippen of golems, the Aleph is erased from its forehead, changing the word truth to the word death, 
and causing the golem to return to a state of vacant immobility like a toddler in front of a television screen. Why there has not been a greater profusion of golems, given the number of extremely shitty situations in which the Jewish people have found themselves over the last 5,783 years, remains a mystery. But clues might be found in the literature of golems, which you can read about on the internet. In some tellings, the golem is a heroic savior. In others, he is an uncontrollable monster, a doltish brute, even a tragic lover. But perhaps we have not yet scratched the surface of what the golem means. And as we continue in your book, we continue to scratch that surface. I'm, I'm wondering if you can, you can talk a little bit about the role of storytelling in folklore and mysticism. I mean, earlier you talked about what a golem is in the folklore of it and then how you made your own decisions to create and recreate the golem as your own in this book. Sure. Um, you know, in a lot of ways, this book is a, kind of a just a, a piling of stories upon stories upon stories. There's a profusion and an exuberance of stories in this book. And, you know, that's what we do both as human beings, as writers and as Jews. Like, there's a reason we're the people of the book. Um, storytelling is an essential kind of facet of humanity. It's how we make sense of the world. So in this book, it was important to me to both kind of riff on the existing body of lore and folklore around golems, but also to reinvent it. And in some ways to like remix and add on to it in such a way that there are stories I tell in the book historically about the golem that I want to feel like they're ripped from the folklore. I want them to feel ancient. I want them to feel mythical and mysterious, but they're things I just made up <laughs> for the, you know, for the sake of the book. Um, so I take us in the book to adventures the golem has in fifth century Babylon and 11th century Spain and so forth. Um, and even the dawn of creation. Um, and, you know, I, I was, I felt very liberated to kind of just invent all of this mythology. Um, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a method of world building, you know, it's, it's what you do, particularly when you're writing something like science fiction, um, or fantasy, right? We always talk about the world building of like, you know, a, a Tolkien or a, or an N.K. Jemison or whatever, but, you know, world building can also be brought to bear even when the world is very recognizable, even when the world is modern Brooklyn slash ancient Babylon in the, in the case of this book. And it really gives uh, some character to New York and Brooklyn itself to take this, uh, sure, fictional, but mystical history and place it in to multicultural and gentrifying Brooklyn. I'm, I'm wondering if you can talk about that, but also in a way that uh, introduces the other two main characters, Len and Miri, in the book. Sure. Um, when I was conceiving of the book, a couple of disparate ideas sort of came together and got me writing. Um, first was the idea of the golem being made by somebody who is wholly unequal to the task, underqualified. So if it's traditionally a rabbi, a priest, or a prophet, what would it look like 
for the golem to be created by a guy who, while Jewish, is not learned, is not even religious, um, doesn't speak Yiddish, which is the language that the golem initially in this book tries to speak to him in. Um, that was like this comic premise that I sort of toyed around with for a number of weeks. And just, it was funny to me. The juxtaposition was interesting. The idea of bringing the golem into the modern world under the wing of a guy who just like has no idea what he's doing was funny, but also it was a skit, right? Not a novel. And then separate from that, I had been toying with and thinking about ideas around epigenetics and the notion of inherited trauma, trauma that makes its way into the DNA. I had sort of been sketching out a sci-fi novel that dealt with that premise in a variety of ways. And when I sort of thought of fusing the two by means of this golem having an ancestral memory, it all sort of began to come together and I was able to start writing. Um, as you say, the book takes place in modern Brooklyn. The golem is brought to life in Williamsburg, which is an area of Brooklyn that has a large Hasidic presence, um, meaning ultra-Orthodox Jews, folks who trace their religious heritage to 17th and 18th century Europe. These are the folks that you see walking around in a very particular kind of distinguishable dress. They are the guys in the black hats, sometimes fur hats, long coats, white shirts, visible prayer fringes coming out from under those jackets sometimes. Um, there are many, many Hasidic sects. I had done some research on them previously for a different project, a, a TV show that I was working on with my friend Danny Hawk that never got off the ground, but um, made me quite knowledgeable, at least knowledgeable enough about them to want to write about them here. All of that to say, this guy, Len Bronstein, this stoned art teacher, makes the golem. The golem comes to life and starts screaming at him in Yiddish and trashing his apartment. Len has no idea what the golem is saying or what it wants. So he parks the golem in front of a television, which happens to be playing a Curb Your Enthusiasm marathon, <laughs> which will be important later in the book. And he runs out to find a Yiddish speaker. And he goes to a nearby bodega because there's a woman who works there named Miri, who he doesn't know, but he shops there a lot. And he once heard her curse out some young yeshiva kids, some young Hasids who came in there trying to buy cigarettes. So he goes there to kind of try to convince this stranger to come back to his house and translate for him, which is like a very weird proposition at best. And Miri is like, yo, I don't know what the hell you're talking about, but like, miss me with that. Um, what we will come to learn is that Miri grew up in a Hasidic sect in Williamsburg, which she walked away from at the age of 18 when she sort of came of age because Miri is gay. And that doesn't really fly in these sects. She was looking at an arranged marriage to a man and a life that would have been miserable for her. So she did a very brave and courageous thing and struck out on her own and has basically been working in this Yemeni bodega ever since. Um, wholly estranged from the community in which she grew up, but that community is like a stone's throw away. She can still hear the sirens blaring from the synagogues heralding the coming of the Sabbath every Friday afternoon, but she's leading this different, secular, somewhat lonely life. So Len eventually convinces her to come in and like the two of them form this funny friendship partnership as they grapple with the golem. The golem, who, of course, is 
part of actual very religious mystical nature, right? Like you mentioned, Lynn and and Miri are living secular lives as Jews, but dealing with this thing that they don't even know how to handle by themselves. Yeah, that's right. I mean, Miri grew up very religious, but also in an environment where as a woman, as a girl, she wasn't given the kind of profound religious education that she would have if she'd been a boy. This is what it means to grow up as a girl in a lot of these Hasidic sects. And she walked away from a lot of it. So she's still a believer in God. In some ways, she's still very religious. Len is much more of a purely secular guy. He's got a cultural connection to Judaism. He certainly identifies as Jewish and with Jewishness. But he's the kind of guy who might be inclined to, you know, if you asked him his Jewish touchstones, he might say Larry David. He might say Philip Roth much more than he's going to say the Talmud or the Torah. We're in conversation with award-winning author Adam Monsbach, and we're in conversation about his new book, The Golem of Brooklyn. So you've brought up Larry David twice now, um, and, <laughs> and we already have we already have a clay monster, this visual that I have in my head, at least from what you described, a clay monster sitting on a couch watching Larry David curb your enthusiasm on TV. I When I read this book, I literally laughed out loud throughout. And I wanted to ask you about the legacy of Jewish humor. Like, why is that important to you? What was your earlier exposure to it? And then when you sit down to write a story like this, how intentional are you about injecting it versus like, is that just how your mind works? It is very intentional. And it is also how my mind works. I mean, I'm someone who views humor as an incredibly important tool in my palette as a writer, even if what I'm working on is very serious, and possibly even more so if what I'm working on is very serious, because humor can be deployed to disarm people, to bring people to the table, to get people talking and thinking about things that they might otherwise have huge defenses built up against. So I've always used humor. Um, whether I'm writing a satire, whether I'm writing a short comic novel like this, whether I'm doing a political ad or a PSA, humor is really, really important to me. And I do think a lot about the legacy of Jewish humor. For me, that was always an important way to connect to Judaism, to the culture, to understand the thinking. Um, humor is incredibly important and runs throughout the history of Judaism as a way to cope with what have often been difficult and dangerous circumstances. It's a survival tool. It can be razor sharp and it's found everywhere. Like you'll find jokes in the Talmud. You'll find rabbis dissing each other brutally in the Talmud <laughs> all the way up through, you know, uh, the, the innovations of a Lenny Bruce or, um, or, or a Larry David, who, as you say, does make an appearance in the book. Um, shout out to Larry David also for voicing the audiobook for one of my profane fake children's books. Um, I still uh, can't believe that happened. I was just going to say you also have Samuel L. Jackson in that list. It's quite a list of uh, voices for your your books. Yeah, yeah. I'm very proud of some of the folks who uh, I've worked with on that, on the audiobook tip. Sam Jackson, Brian Cranston, Larry David, Danny Hawk, Jizza, Wyatt Cenac. Um Good list. Good list. Excellent. Excellent. So getting back to the book, the golem that you've created comes to life over various centuries to fight 
anti-Semitism. But when the golem comes back in the modern Brooklyn, it's coming back also to to fight white supremacy. I, I'm wondering if you can talk about why you made that choice. Why is that important here? Well, for a number of reasons. Um, this golem, of course, has a very kind of winding path toward understanding what his purpose here is. The thing that he's screaming at Len in Yiddish, one of the things he's screaming at Len in Yiddish upon his suscitation is, where is the crisis? The golem's understanding of himself is that he only is animated when there is a crisis, when there's an immediate danger to the Jewish community. So he doesn't understand why he's here, and Len can't really articulate to him what the crisis is. And, you know, in some sense, I think that that is indicative of the state in which we find ourselves. Like, how do we identify a crisis when it's everywhere and nowhere at once? When it isn't a pogrom, but the creeping normalization of lies and canards and stereotypes we thought we'd overcome? Or when it's the orderly erosion of the rights that safeguard our freedom, not just as Jews, but in America in general, right? How do we, how do we understand a crisis um, when it is moving at a very kind of slow pace. Um, you know, when we look around and find books are being banned and abortion and voting rights are being snatched away and anti-Semitism is being mainstreamed and gay folks are being brutalized and trans children are being vilified and Nazis are waving flags in our streets as literally happened yesterday in Florida. Um, but Len can't articulate any of that and he doesn't really know why he made the golem. Um, but eventually someone shows Len, Miri shows Len, after a number of other adventures, footage of the Charlottesville Unite the Right rally where these dudes with the tiki torches are marching and, and chanting, Jews will not replace us. And the golem is like, okay, now we're getting somewhere. Like, where are those guys? I would like to make the acquaintance of those dudes. And at that point, they identify the fact that there is in fact a similar rally taking place in Kentucky in a couple of days time called the Save Our History's Future Rally. Um, and they begin to make their way to Kentucky. And it's unclear what the Golem's intentions are initially. Um, Len and Miri kind of pile into the car with him. Some other things happen first. A lot of things happen first, but that eventually becomes their destination. And, you know, I wanted to take the story there because um, on a very fundamental level, the praxis of racism, the praxis of white supremacy and white nationalism today is built around the ideas that animate anti-Semitism and have for thousands of years. Like the way that those people view the world, anti-Semitism isn't just incidental to it, it's fundamental to it. And it's kind of the ideology from which all these other forms of hatred spin off. And there are important distinctions to be made around different kinds of hate and different kinds of racism. Anti-Semitism does not map directly onto anti-Black racism or you know, anti-gay uh, sentiment, but it's kind of the wellspring in a lot of ways. And for folks maintaining those kinds of toxic worldviews, it's the bottom of the funnel. Like if you're somebody who believes that there are forces outside of your control 
that are determining the path your life takes. If you're this kind of embittered person looking for mysterious forces to blame, you will eventually come to blame the Jews. That is where all of this ends up. Um, so it was important to me to shape a narrative that took us kind of to ground zero of what that fight looks like today. Um, and, you know, anti-Semitism in America today, despite what dominates the news cycle, you know, in the most significant ways, it doesn't look like yay or Kyrie Irving. It looks like Richard Spencer. It looks like Donald Trump having lunch with Nick Fuentes. It looks like patriarchal Christian dominionism that makes no bones about what it sets out to do and how it sets out to disenfranchise and dominate in this country. And it's become inseparable from the legislative priorities of the National Republican Party. Um, and we see that playing out again and again, day by day. And part of the smokescreen around what anti-Semitism is and how it looks and how it operates is to obscure the true sources of the danger represented by white nationalism and to instead posit that, you know, other forces, other groups just as marginalized as Jewish folks are the ones responsible for those sentiments, which is really not in the most significant ways what we should be focusing on. That's the voice of Adam Monsbach. And we're in conversation about his new book, The Golem of Brooklyn, but we're in conversation about so much more. Adam, I really want to appreciate you for drawing that line so clearly. It touched on quite a few more of the questions that I have for you. And so I still want to ask some of those and 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 really take a moment to spend time with them because I think the conversation of modern anti-Semitism in American liberalism and modern white supremacy and liberalism is is a really important conversation. I also want to bring up this point that that touches on something you talked about, which is kind of this liberal understanding of what anti-Semitism is, which can sometimes come from an orientation that hate is bad, but we don't really know exactly what we're talking about. And and I think even like in my experience growing up living most of my life in the Bay Area, people have some exposure to Judaism, but also the depth of that is 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 not there. I mean, I hosted a Hanukkah party a few years back and invited friends who I wanted to share that with. And and one friend who's pretty waspy and also an Oakland public school teacher asked me if there were 12 days of Hanukkah. <laughs> Just for listeners, in case you don't know, it, there's eight nights. But yeah, I mean, I, I think there's some broad social awareness of Jews, but even here in liberal Bay Area, like many folks don't have real knowledge of what that means, what, what Judaism celebrates or challenges. And for those folks, the cultural and historical portion can be, I imagine, very hard to tease out from the religious side of things. I'm, I guess I'm bringing this up because I want to talk about how anti-Semitism is working now. And I think a lot of folks, even our liberal friends, might have this stance against hatred, but also might not be aware of of what or who Jews are and how white Jews in particular have a unique experience within whiteness and white supremacy. So I guess I, I wanted to tell that story and then start there. How much of what I just said resonates with you? Everything you just said resonates quite deeply with me. And it's important to talk about and, and hard to tease out. Um, 
And I guess I would start by saying that the relationship between Jews and whiteness is a complicated one and also a very recent one in America. It's important for us to understand that whiteness is not a static thing. It, the definition of who gets to be called white and treated as white in America is always changing. And vast numbers of people, entire populations, went from being viewed as not white to being viewed as white. Jews are among those groups. So are Irish folks, Italian folks, Polish folks, Slavic folks. Whiteness recruits in order to maintain its hegemony and its dominance in this culture. So at certain points in history, the books kind of open and people who were first seen as other, seen as worthy only of being oppressed by whiteness, begin to be folded into whiteness. And this is a strategy. And Jews in America have a particularly thorny and unresolved relationship to whiteness. And of course, I'm talking now of like predominantly Ashkenazi Jews in America, Eastern European Jews in America. We very much were not seen as white. And being seen as white is very recent for us. It's like predominantly a, a post-war, uh, a, 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 an, an evolution that comes, you know, sometime between World War II and the present. And it comes in fits and starts. And central to the worldview of white nationalists, of course, is that Jews are in no way white. And in fact, that we are masquerading as white as a way to destabilize whiteness, to destroy whiteness from the inside. They're very clear on this point. Anytime I speak about white privilege, which is something I've done quite a bit over the years, the immediate response from those dark corners of the internet is that I can't talk about that because I'm not qualified, because I'm not white, and instead I'm Jewish, and I'm engaging in this deliberate practice of deception by pretending to be white. You know, this is a very predictable and consistent attack that I've experienced many times. Um, and somehow it always catches me by surprise because it's so outlandish. Um, but like to back up even from that and talk about what it is to be Jewish is also to talk about what anti-Semitism is. And anti-Semitism is a, as I've kind of alluded to, a totalizing worldview. It's not just a form of hatred. It's not just disliking Jews. It's believing that Jews are these kind of stateless venal parasites who control the banks, the media, the world. It's believing that we all act as one, that there's some, some kind of secret conspiracy and hive mind, you know? And it's like, in a lot of ways, to understand the manifestations of anti-Semitism, you have to understand that mentality, the idea that there's this Jewish conspiracy and that Jews are like these puppet masters who are behind everything, right? So like, for example, a few months ago, uh, the artist formerly known as Kanye West read off a list of Jewish media executives, right? Like on Instagram or something. And the thing is, if you don't understand the implications of that, it's, it's meaningless, right? It's just a list of names. Anti-Semitism is the thing that knits those names together into a conspiracy and infers that they're all working together in secret and terrible concert to subvert, to control, as opposed to just being individuals with jobs who probably compete against each other. And, you know, this applies specifically to those Jewish names, 
Like, by contrast, the New York City Police Department, the leadership of it has always been predominantly Irish, right? That's a fact. But no one ever says the Irish control the police because nobody thinks of the Irish that way. And conversely, people do think of the Jews this way. And it's, it's exasperating and frustrating and also, in a certain sense, very funny because for those of us who understand a little bit more about Judaism, the notion of like Jews agreeing on anything or anything is hilarious, right? Like two Jews, three opinions. The, the second most important book in Judaism is the Talmud, which is a 600-year, 6,000-page debate among rabbis about everything, right? Jews have been arguing for millennia about like what grains we are allowed to keep in our houses during Passover. These Hasidic sects in Brooklyn that I referred to before, half of them won't speak to or do business with or intermarry with each other because they disagree on so many things, you know? So the idea that Jews are all united in some kind of secret conspiracy would be hilarious if it wasn't also the cause of so much violence and hatred. Well, one of the things that's that's been really interesting to me, just like watching media cycles over the past year, the past couple of years around, you've mentioned some celebrities who've brought some of these conversations to the fore. There's this dynamic in anti-Semitism that it's it's not exactly punching down the way that racism works uh, against many folks. And part of that is because of integration into whiteness. But like in, in some ways it's punching up. Mm-hmm. Um, but but it's still punching. Yeah. Punching up, meaning that it's like the racist trope is that Jews actually have power, that Jews within some Jewish community like are able to control all kind of things, whereas so many other racialized tropes against other people are that people are dumb or monstrous or don't have skills. And I was just wondering if that if that piece also resonates with you, the the perhaps punching up as a reference point yeah. for anti-Semitism. No, I think that's very well put. And I mean, one of the ironies of anti-Semitism is that it it attacks both from above and from below. So there's a, there's, there's a, there's a sense in which Jews are thought of both as these world-dominating, stateless, um, globalist puppet masters who control everything, and also at the same time as these these parasites who are disgusting and weak and are compared to cancer and vermin, um, and you know, and, and the, the clearly these two stereotypes are incompatible with each other. But there's nothing logical about any of this to begin with. So as you say, yeah, a lot of the current state of the conversation on anti-Semitism is predicated on these ideas of tremendous Jewish power and influence and wealth. And this idea that, for example, you know, the minute you speak ill of the Jews, you get canceled and your life is over because we have that kind of power, right? And it's like, well, that's incompatible with most, if not all, of history. And, you know, as with anything, there are reasons that the path of the Jews in the world has been what it's been. So, you know, for example, take the idea that Jews control Hollywood. Well, there are a lot of studios that were founded by European Jewish immigrants when the film business began. 
And one of the reasons for that is that as an industry that didn't previously exist, there were no barriers to entry for the Jews as there were in almost every other industry. So because it didn't exist, it could be founded and invented and Jews had a way into it, right? Not to mention that many of them were also working in the Yiddish theater in New York and had the vision and, you know, went out West and founded Hollywood and invented the film industry. Um, Other professions that are historically associated with Jews, every one of them has a history behind it, right? The trope of the Jewish moneylender and the Shylock figure. Well, Jews were barred from owning land for most of European history. Owning land, buying horse, you know, owning land, owning horses. Um, couldn't do that. Paid higher taxes, weren't allowed to have weapons. This made us very vulnerable. It also made us city dwelling people. It also made us people who lived under the rule of various empires. So it made us multilingual. It made us liminal people. Um, it made us translators between Hebrew and Latin and Greek and Aramaic. All of these skills and all of these restrictions pushed us towards certain professions, whether that was banking, because Christians weren't allowed to lend money, but you need money to be lent in order to stimulate an economy. So you allow the Jews to do that, but you also vilify them for it. The law. Jews have this incredibly long history and relationship with legal thinking, as exemplified in the Talmud. So we are historically and intellectually primed to think about the law in sophisticated ways, which make us good lawyers in a lot of ways. There's a history to each and every one of these stereotypes, and it usually has to do with making something out of nothing, with what we were not allowed to do and what we did so that we could survive. Um, And so, you know, you can trace all these stereotypes back in history, but the notion that Jews are categorically wealthy and powerful is a fallacy. Um, Jews are not the wealthiest group in America. Um, you know, there are plenty of Jews who are not wealthy at all. Um, the more religious you are as a Jew, the less wealthy you tend to be. These Hasidic, uh, groups that I mentioned earlier tend to have a lot of children and 60% of those families are on public assistance in New York city, for example, but that's not really part of the stereotype or the you know, the, the public imagination. Well, and bringing it back to your book, the two main characters, Len and Miri, who are Jewish and more secular Jews, they also, I, I, I felt like it, throughout the book are just by the way that they interact, certainly with their own experience as Jew, Jewish people, but also with each other and the world outside, challenges the narrative around what those stereotypes hold. Um, but I wanted to ask you, in, in writing this book, in positioning the main characters as they are and like putting it into this legacy of mystical uh, defender of Jews against anti-Semites, who, who do you imagine is going to be reading the book and how do you imagine that um, that audience, that readership could walk away with potentially more broad or developed understandings of who Jews are in this modern world? You know, I, it's funny. I never quite know how to answer questions about who I imagine the reader of the book to be. You know, obvi- obviously, like any writer, 
in a general sense, I hope that as many people read my book as possible. I wanted this book to be complex and layered and funny enough for Jewish readers to get a lot out of it. And I also wanted it to be hopefully approachable and legible for non-Jewish folks who come to it without all of that inside knowledge. I also was very deliberate in not wanting to make it too easy. I believe that reading can involve a degree of difficulty. And, you know, as I said, the golem initially only speaks Yiddish before ingesting a massive dose of LSD and then binge watching Curb Your Enthusiasm and emerging with an understanding of English. Um, but like all of the Yiddish that he speaks and other people speak in the book is untranslated. Um, that was a very deliberate decision, of course. Like I want you to read those words, maybe let your mind try to pronounce those words, but I want it to be mystical, not mystical, but like mysterious and un definable. I, 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 at no point did I consider having like a glossary in the back where I told you what all those Yiddish words meant. Um, I feel okay about the book being understood on different levels, depending on how much insider knowledge you have. That's the case with any book, right? It's funny. In a way, I was having these same kinds of conversations like 18 years ago when I published Angry Black White Boy. And the questions were like, well, you know, this is a satire about race and whiteness and hip hop, but what about people who don't know anything about hip hop? Will they be able to understand the book? And it's like, I don't know, good luck to them. You know, if you're, no matter what you're reading, there's a field of reference and a depth of reference that you can engage in on any level you choose. You can look up every reference you don't understand or you can let it wash over you. Um, hopefully this book is funny enough, fast paced enough, unexpected enough, involves enough adventure that people will learn some things about the sort of complex state of Judaism in America, whether or not they're Jewish, if that makes sense. It does make sense to me. I, I positioned myself at the very beginning of this conversation. I am Jewish. I also mentioned earlier that I laughed throughout reading the whole book. I really appreciated the book and it meant a lot to me. And I'm looking forward to recommending it to quite a few of my friends Jewish and uh, folks who are not Jewish. Um, I, I wanted to end our conversation with something that you made a reference point to earlier, um, talking about the rally in Charlottesville that is, you know, now now famous and, and kind of like the images we saw from that are terrifying. White folks, white supremacists carrying tiki torches and among their chants were the Jews will not replace us. Um, I'm, I'm wondering if we can spend just a little bit of time. We, you mentioned it earlier, but I wanted to be really specific around. So we just spent a bunch of time talking about anti-Semitism and the tropes around anti-Semitism, but I wanted to come back to the relationship between anti-Semitism and anti-blackness, anti-black racism, and how those things are tied uh, into white supremacy together. Um, your book is not specifically, it doesn't dive deep into anti-Blackness because it's talking about anti-Semitism and it's this this golem's journey, but it references it because the the enemy that the golem is able to identify is white supremacists. Um, 
on a very simple level, I would say that the same people who are toting those torches and chanting Jews will not replace us, um, their hatred extends beyond Jews, includes black folks, includes immigrants, includes um, pretty much any non-white Christian patriarchal minority you can name. And we see that very clearly. Those connections are something that they forefront, something they are not shy about. Um, this is the agenda. And, you know, those Charlottesville Tiki Torch marchers have been immortalized because of the deaths that resulted from that rally, from Trump's response that there were fine people on both sides. But in no way was that an isolated incident. And in no way did that Jews will not replace us chant get retired after that. As we have this conversation literally yesterday in Orlando and uh, in front of the gates of Disney World, dozens of white nationalists from various organizations were chanting exactly the same thing. And the signs they were carrying were not just anti-Semitic, they were also carrying anti-LGBTQ signs. Like, the, the agenda of those folks and the invocation specifically of replacement theory, which is what they're making reference to with those Jews will not replace us chants, like, these are fundamental ideas about white genocide, quote-unquote white genocide, which is, you know, the, the notion that the white race is somehow at risk through um, lower birth rates and through the influx of immigrants who are going to take our jobs and our way of life and the Jews who are puppeteering it all from behind and the violence of the black community. All of this is a tapestry that they weave together in order to identify enemies for them to then go out and fight against. This is what that type of white identity ultimately looks like, is a feeling of persecution, a feeling that the advantages, the unearned advantages they once enjoyed as white Americans have eroded as other people have gotten more rights. So it's all very intricately connected. Um, Anti-Semitism and the praxis of that bleeds and connects very deeply and clearly to anti-Blackness and all of these other sentiments. Um, there's more to be said, of course, about the relationship between uh, whiteness and Judaism, the way that Jews have become whiter, the ways that certain alliances have frayed, particularly around Black and Jewish stuff and the civil rights movement. Um, it's probably too much to get in great depth in over here. But, you know, because of the liminal relationship that Jews have to whiteness, the changing, the mutability, the tenuous whiteness that we enjoy in this country, enjoy in quotation marks, we have decisions to make about who we want our allies to be, who we want to see ourselves in community with. Um, and that to me is crucial in terms of thinking about how we move in the world as Jewish folks. We have choices to make. We have moral and spiritual choices to make about who our allies have been and should be in the future. And to me, right at the heart of that is the profound relationship that Black and Jewish folks in this country have enjoyed, which has been, which has taken all kinds of twists and turns and has been both beautiful and fraught and vituperative 
and productive, but, you know, we have a choice to make about whether whiteness is something we want to embrace or reject. And I think we are at the precipice of that decision uh, right now and every day. Is that choice up to us? I think in large part it is. Um, You know, I mean, look, far be it from me to suggest that we should allow ourselves to be defined by our enemies, but our enemies are very clear about whether we're white and they are very clear that we are not. So the persecution that we are up against at their hands, the danger we face from them, takes it as a given that we are not ever going to be afforded the humanity that they see themselves having and that they see brown, black, Jewish, LGBTQ folks as not having. So like, let's start with that. It's risky to say that you should define yourselves by how your enemies see you, but it's also important to know how your enemies see you because that will tell you who your allies are. I want to thank you for that. And I also want to thank you for bringing in all the mystical elements, but also the very human elements and very like in, in my experience as a Jew, like I, I found myself very uh, represented in this book. Adam Monsbach's latest book is called The Golem of Brooklyn. Adam, we're going to have to wrap it up there. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. You've been listening to Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. That's it for this episode, family. You can find more information about topics and guests in this episode's show notes. Law and Disorder is produced at KPFA. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. The show is produced by Jesse Strauss and hosted by me, Kat Brooks. Our theme music was composed by Steve Raskin of Fort Knox 5. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis, that's D-I-S, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Feel free to holler at us about something you heard or send us a show idea at lawanddisorder at kpfa.org. You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA. That's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area. Our show and all of KPFA's programs are funded exclusively by you, the listener. And if you're in a position to support us, please donate today at kpfa.org. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. We all we got, fam. Bye.